Really what I would say, instead of unschooling, I'm proposing that we look into self-directed education, which can be unschooling or it can occur at a setting that might be called a school where children and teenagers are in charge of their own um, education in that setting. So um, that's right. I think that um, that children are designed to take charge of their own education. Children do a wonderful job of it when we allow them to do it and when we provide the conditions that enable them to do that. That was Dr. Peter Gray, author of Free to Learn, Why Unleashing the Instinct to Play Will Make Our Children Happier, More Self-Reliant, and Better Students for Life. Welcome to the Education Futures Podcast. I'm John Morvick. Free play is our focus for this episode, and it's a growing conversation topic in the world of education. From taking away recess as a punishment for misbehavior or academic noncompliance, to providing students additional time during the school day for free, unstructured opportunities, we wanted to explore what others are thinking when it comes to the topic of play and how it relates to our educational settings. Adults often assume that it's their job to keep children busy at all time. But evidence suggests that children learn best when afforded great amounts of free time and opportunities for free play. And these are activities that are freely chosen and directed by participants for their own sake. This can involve exploring, meeting new friends, playing games, being bored, and even rescuing oneself from boredom. And we wanted to learn more about this. So in December of 2016, we interviewed Dr. Peter Gray, who's the author of Free to Learn, Why Unleashing Instinct to Play Will Make Our Children Happier, More Self-Reliant, and Better Students for Life. In his book, Peter argues it's time to stop asking what's wrong with their children and start asking what's wrong with the system. It's a bit provocative. And we asked for more details on some of these things, and we wanted to know, quite specifically, how has childhood play changed over the years? What is trustful parenting for free play? And if we're exposing children to too much school and too little freedom, as he argues, what would we say to parents and communities that believe schooling is the most responsible thing that we could provide for kids? Here's a little background. I first met Peter nearly five years ago when helping a group of parents in Bavaria launch a Sudbury-type school. Sudbury-type schools practice a form of learning in which each student decides, as an individual, how to spend his or her time, what he or she learns, and what the outcomes of the experience should be. These schools are run as direct democracies where every student and every staff member has an equal voice on all school matters. This includes staff employment and how finances are managed. These schools are quite radical, and we figured that if they could be organized in Bavaria, one of the most conservative parts of Europe, they could be created anywhere. To cut a long story short, the school opened but didn't survive long before the government shut it down. It was just too weird for them. If students could set their own learning agendas, how could the state feel secure in knowing that students were learning what was expected of them? Is it possible to be called a school if students are not told what to do, what to learn, or what to think? Over the following years, I got to meet up with Peter a few more times at education conferences where we're both speakers. It's always a pleasure. I keep learning a lot from him. His ideas can come across as being a bit of a contrarian at first, providing an argument against everything most of us have ever thought about in education. But his ideas have strong backing from the fields of psychology and anthropology, as well as successful stories from the world of education. Peter is a professor emeritus at Boston College. He is the author of the widely used textbook, psychology, and he also writes for Psychology Today. So even if you do not agree with 100% of what he says, his arguments deserve our full attention and our full consideration. Here are the highlights from our conversation. 
Well, uh, I'm a, an evolutionary psychologist, which means that I'm interested in human nature um, and how human nature came about by natural selection. Um, and for many years now, I've been focusing on the nature of children and especially on those aspects of children's nature that serve the function of their education, their curiosity, their playfulness, their sociability, and so on. Um, so that's, uh, that's me professionally. <laughs> that's, what I, <laughs> that's what I do. I retired from teaching quite a number of years ago, but um, continue to uh, conduct research and publish both academic and non-academic articles about how children learn. Cool. So can you explain a bit the premise of your book and what really inspired you to write it? Well, the premise of the book is that um, children come into the world biologically designed to educate themselves. Um, and our role uh, as adults is not to educate them, but to provide the conditions that allow children to educate themselves. So I've been concerned about what those conditions are. So the book is about the children's biological tent drives that, that lead them to, to educate themselves, their curiosity, their playfulness. In this book, especially their playfulness is what I talk about, their sociability, uh, and the conditions that allow them to do so. I also talk in the book a little bit about the history of schooling, why schools are the way they are and why they don't really serve the function of education um, and how they interfere with children's tendencies to abilities to educate themselves. Um, what did childhood play look like to you when you were young? And how has it changed over the, over the years? Mm -hmm. Well, I'm 72, going to be 73 in, a, in about three months. Um, so I uh, grew up uh, largely in the 1950s little bit in the 1940s, but uh, my peak years of childhood were in the 1950s. And um, it was a very different time for kids. It was a much better time for kids. I'm not nostalgic for the 1950s uh, in general. There's a lot of uh, things about the 1950s that I would not want to go back to. But in terms of children's lives, whether you were rich or poor, children's lives were far, far richer then than they are now. Uh, children were allowed to go out and explore and play away from adults. Um, we had school, but it was not nearly the big deal it is today. Um, we School, first of all, was five weeks shorter on average uh, than it is today, the school year. Uh, the uh, We had in elementary school two hours outdoor of recess. I don't know if that was true in all elementary schools, but it was true in the, in the schools I went to in Minnesota, Minnesota and Wisconsin. Um, and we didn't have homework, certainly not in elementary school. We had homework in high school, but not like today. So children's lives were um, largely, you know, we, we had jobs, we had part-time jobs. Sometimes as we got a little older, we had chores at home. But primarily what kids were doing is being outdoors, playing with other kids. More time doing that, all told, than being in school. More time doing that than being under adult direction. And that's the environment in which over 
human history, children have become educated. That's the environment that children's natural educative drives are designed to operate within. So over the years since 1950, uh, this has been pretty well documented by historians, by social scientists in a variety of ways, but since the 1950s, there's been a continuous decline in um, in North America, but also in much of Europe, in children's uh, freedom to go out and play and explore away from adults, um, such that there's almost no comparison between uh, today uh, in children's lives today compared to the 1950s. There's been a continuous, gradual decline in children's freedom to go out and play away from adults. And over this same period of time, there's been a continuous and gradual and overall dramatic increase in all sorts of mental disorders in childhood. And one of my claims in the book is that there is a cause-effect relationship between the two. I uh, present the argument that the kinds of mental disorders we're seeing in childhood today are exactly what you would expect to see if children are being play-deprived. I I also read in that a major point you make is that you argue that schools are too involved in indoctrinating kids. And how so and towards what end do you mean with that? Well, I think I, I don't I don't particularly make the claim that schools are involved in indoctrination today. I make the claim that schools developed initially for the explicit purpose of indoctrination in biblical gospel. I mean, the the schools that we have today are really direct descendants of the schools that were developed in the um, in the in the in the late seventeenth and early eighteenth century, and then kind of began to flourish in the nineteenth century. Uh, developed initially by uh, Protestants as part of the Protestant Revolution and. Uh, the first compulsory, the first large-scale compulsory school system, where the schools looked very much, uh, in many ways, like schools today, were developed in Prussia for the specific purpose of indoctrination in biblical gospel, teaching children to read so they could read the Bible. Uh, but, but obedience training and indoctrination were the purposes of the schools. Uh, later on, the schools were taken over by the states for purposes of indoctrination in state uh, gospel. You know, and in Germany, the German language is the most beautiful language, and the German people are the most wonderful people, and everybody surrounding Germany are Germany's enemies, and so on and so forth. That became the indoctrination. Uh, uh, as schools were taken over by states uh, throughout Europe and in and in the colonies and eventually the United States, I don't think today there is a specific attempt to indoctrinate. There's a kind of um, indoctrination that occurs in that. I think the indoctrination is this, and it's not necessarily deliberate. It's that you, as the student, are kind of a helpless being. <laughs> You as the student depend upon we smart adults to educate you, <laughs> to grow you up. The indoctrination is you do as we tell you to do, mm -hmm. and things are going to be good for you. If you don't do as we tell you to do, things are not going to be so good to you. And so it's that kind of indoctrination. I don't think teachers go into teaching in order to do that, but I think that's the... Uh, 
that's the inevitable consequence of the system that we have. The system was developed primarily for the purposes of indoctrination and obedience training. And the obedience training, even though teachers don't think that they're in the job of obedience training, very few teachers that I know would say, I'm going into teaching to, to, so, to make children obedient. But the fact of the matter is, the only way you cannot pass in a public school uh, is by not doing what you're told to do. So the real lesson is in obedience. The real lesson is unquestioned obedience. Do what you're told to do, and you're going to be okay in school. You rebel, you don't do what you're told to do, and you are in continuous trouble in school. So it is a kind of indoctrination in obedience. It's a kind of indoctrination in um, in uh, in the view that you are dependent upon these wise others who are going to show you how to live, and you're not really capable of figuring out how to live your own life. So as a solution to that, You've been proposing that we look more into unschooling, right? Well, unschooling writ large. I mean, really what I would say instead of unschooling, I'm proposing that we look into self-directed education, which can be unschooling or it can occur at a setting that might be called a school where children and teenagers are in charge of their own um, education in that setting. So uh, that's right. I think that um, that... Children are designed to take charge of their own education. Children do a wonderful job of it when we allow them to do it and when we provide the conditions that enable them to do that. Peter, you say that we're exposing children to too much school and too little freedom. What would you say to parents who think that schooling is the most responsible thing that they can provide? Well, first of all, I don't blame parents for thinking that because they they hear this message all the time, you know, from every all sorts of sources, from the president of the United States on down. Everybody's telling them about the importance of their children staying in school, about the importance of their children doing well in school, about the importance of doing well on tests. Uh, the pressure for not only on the kids but on the parents is enormous for school. What I would say to parents is that um, let's look at the evidence on the other side. And I've been one, along with others, who have been looking at the evidence for what happens if you don't do school. <laughs> what happens if – I'm not talking about the person who just drops out feeling like a dropout. I'm the per talking about the person who maybe better term would be rises out of school says, I'm going, to do, I'm going to take charge of my own education. I'm not going to go to school anymore. The parents might have made that decision, sometimes even before a child ever starts school. And then they register the child as a homeschooler, but they allow the child to take charge of his or her own learning at home. Or they might uh, enroll the child in a school such as the Sudbury Valley School, which is where I've done some of my research. Um, or schools that have been modeled after the Sudbury Valley School, or schools such as the uh, Agile Learning Centers, which are also sets. These are all places where there's a good number of children of all ages. There are some adults present. There's all kinds of learning opportunities, but nobody's forcing anybody to do anything. You are, a, you are in charge of your own life in that setting. 
So I've conducted research on what happens if you go to this kind of a school or if you do homeschooling where you're in charge of your own education. It turns out these people do very well in life. They do very, very well in life. And I don't think it's because it's a self-selected sample. I mean, some of the kids who do this are kids who were doing very badly in public school uh, before they before they left for for um, for unschooling or for one of these democratically organized um, schools for self-directed education. I see kids from the whole range of personalities, and I don't see any anybody within the normal range of personality who doesn't do well in that setting. Um, and in a way, it shouldn't be surprising. I mean, you look at... Um, kids before they ever start school. And they're all constantly learning. They're constantly exploring. They're constantly working at figuring out the world around them. And so basically, self-directed education is simply a continuation of what all kids do before they start school. And, um, and it should be no surprise that it works so well, especially when we consider how much children learn before they ever start school. You know, think of it. They learn a good share of what they'll ever know in life. They learn before they ever start school. What if what if we allowed them to just continue learning in that kind of way? That's what un that's what self-directed education is. Also, there are more virtual uh, opportunities out there, uh, simulations and games. Um, really wondering what value does playing through, say, video games have on learning and social development? Well, I think a lot of people, of course, um, a lot of adults, especially older adults like me, are um, negative about com computer games and all the screen time supposedly the kids are on. And they use this word screen time as if no matter what you're doing on that screen, it's all the same thing, <laughs> all negative. So, But the truth of the matter is that we um, live in a world where the computer is without question the primary tool of the culture that kids are growing up in. So just as hunter-gatherer kids are growing up where the primary tools are bows and arrows and digging sticks and fire and so on, our kids are growing up where the primary tools are various versions of computers. And so it should be no surprise that kids are is strongly, strongly attracted to computers. The kids generally figure out computers faster than their parents do. Whenever there's new technology, the young generation gravitate to it and the older generation are skeptical of it. So it's quite right and proper that our children love computers. If there's one thing that they ought to be doing, it's playing with computers because that's the tool that they need. Now, unfortunately though, some kids are playing with computers to the expense of being able to get outdoors and get fresh air and exercise and engage in physical activities with other kids. And many times we tend to blame the computer for that. The kids are on the computers and the computer is addictive and the, or the computer game is addictive and so therefore they're not going outside. My uh, research and the research of others uh, that's been published suggests that um, a, a different cause-effect relationship here. Kids are not going outdoors to play, not so much because they're addicted to computers, but because they're not really allowed to go outdoors and play. Or if they are, they go outdoors and there's no other kids to play with. And kids aren't 
attracted to the great outdoors. They're attracted to other kids. <laughs> and if there's nobody else to play with outdoors, they'll come back in and they'll get back on their computer and make contact with other kids through the computer if they want to make contact with other kids. They're not allowed an adventure in the real world that involves a little risk and so on. So they'll have an adventure in the, in the, in the virtual world. And if we deprive them of that, we're depriving them of all adventures. I mean, thank God for the computer because it's the only place that kids today are really allowed to play. That's true for many kids at any rate. So um, I think we've got to stop blaming computers and we've, got to, and we've got to start addressing the question of how are we going to provide a world once again where children find it attractive to play outdoors because there are other kids out there and because they can get away from adults there. Kids don't not, even young kids need to get away from adults. Play when adults are around who are telling them what to do or intervening in their play, not allowing them to do things that the adult thinks are too risky, not allowing them to play fight because the adults can't tell the difference between a real fight and a play fight, not allowing them to tease one another because the adults think it's bullying, <laughs> and so on and so forth. I mean, kids need to get away from adults in order to truly play. And we've got to figure out, once again, how to allow that to happen. Well, that's great. Um, we got some questions that are popping in on Facebook. Um, uh, from Crystal Hartkamp uh, in the Netherlands, uh, my fantastic wife Kelly also, and we're gonna kind of get through these. Uh, but let's just start with crystals because I think that links with uh, what you're just saying a little bit. She asked, "What limiting beliefs do you see with parents and teachers which prevent us uh, to move forward uh, of, towards a model of self-directed learning for all schools?" Well, first of all, hi Crystal. It's nice to uh, <laughs> it's nice to have you on here. Um, the uh, you know, there's a lot of limiting beliefs. I I think that I think that the pri if we were to sum it up, I think that the primary limiting belief is that children are incompetent, <laughs> that children are incapable of making reasonable decisions about their own lives and their own activity that children are going to take risks that are going to endanger them if we don't watch them all the time. Um, and, that, and that children develop better when they're carefully guided and taught uh, and protected by adults. Um, you know, that's the kind of set of beliefs that leads to the kind of overprotective parenting that we have and also to the educational system that we have. We just don't trust children to look out for themselves. We don't trust children to figure out what they need to learn and to learn it in their own natural ways. And this distrust has been growing with time. Uh, when I was a kid in the 1950s, there was a lot more trust of children. There was a lot more understanding that a lot of what children learn, they learn out of school. And so they don't need to be in school all the time. And when they're out of school, they should be allowed to play and not be in some kind of adult-directed sport or some kind of adult-directed activity. Because I'm not sure that anybody particularly articulated it, but there was a kind of common sense understanding that children are designed to play and that they learn something in that play. All right. Uh 
I think this is uh, going to be a provocative question with a little bit of a provocative answer from you. Um, <clears throat> my wife, Kelly, uh, asks, how can we incorporate more true self-directed learning opportunities within a public school, within a public school structure? Is it possible? Well, <clears throat> I mean, I think it's possible, but I don't think it would happen. Uh, I think that the, I think, I hope that we at some point have uh, public support, state support, government support for settings for self-directed learning. I think that's the goal. I don't think that's going to occur by virtue of our current public schools changing. I don't think they're capable of changing. The entire system is set up with certain assumptions in mind, and you can't just turn it upside down. As long as you have the idea that teachers are responsible for children's learning and that you measure learning by testing children and that the way you evaluate teachers is the children improve on tests, <laughs> then you can't have self-directed learning in that setting. So you've got to change the basic way it operates. You've got to change the way, if you call them teachers, first of all, you would probably want to get rid of the word teacher because that implies that your job is to teach, right? <laughs> so you're supposed to be teaching, <laughs> right? You're not doing your job if you're not teaching. If you're just, if you're just there being an adult, letting the kids learn, <laughs> You're not doing your job. So the, so you'd have to get rid of the whole idea of teachers. You'd have to get rid of the of schools of education that are teaching teachers how to teach. You know, these, this is not going to happen by virtue of changes within the system. But here's how it will happen. It will happen, but it'll take a little time. It will happen because already an increasing number of families are taking their kids out of these kinds of schools. In the United States, it's already something like 4% of school-age kids are being homeschooled. Um, not all of them unschooled by far, you know, but a, a fairly significant fraction of them are being unschooled. Uh, so the, um, so and, and every time the government does a survey of where kids are going to school, they do it every four years in the United States, that percentage outside who are, who are being homeschooled has been increasing. So I think that what's going to happen is that over time, more and more families are going to become aware of other families who are doing this. At some point, we'll reach a critical tipping point where everybody knows somebody who's doing this. Everybody can see that the kids are happy, <laughs> that the grown-up kids are doing well in life, even if they didn't do anything that looked like school. And they're going to say, why should I fight with my kid and send them get them up at seven in the morning and put them on that school bus and kicking and screaming. <laughs> if the kid down the block isn't doing that and he's doing very well and his older sister is, uh, uh, is having a good adult life, um, I don't have to do this. And I think that's going to happen. I don't know exactly when it's going to happen, but the way social change typically occurs is this way. There's a certain number of very... Uh, brave people, courageous people who see what seems to be right to them and they do it, even though other people aren't doing it. They get criticized for it. They're, you know, they're, their neighbors, their former friends are telling them you're doing something awful because you're not doing what other people are doing. Or in the case of uh, self-directed education, they're telling them you're going to ruin your child's life by doing this, you know. So it takes a lot of conviction to do it when you are one of very few people doing it. 
But this is the way social change occurs. You start with the brave pioneers, and then a few more people begin to do it because they see those brave pioneers are okay. And then a few more, and then suddenly there's a rush to doing it if it's the right thing to do. And in this case, it is the right thing to do. And we will see a rush out of school. And then there will be a voting block that says, hey, nobody's in school anymore. Let's start sending, let's start spending that money that we're now spending for these schools that are emptying out. Let's start spending that money for learning centers that provide the conditions for self-directed education instead of coer using coercion and reward and punishment to make children learn what they're not interested in let's allow them to learn what they're interested in and let's believe that if they learn what they're interested in they are going to become educated there's lots of evidence that that's true let's believe that and let's provide government support for those kinds of settings which, by the way, will be a whole lot cheaper than the coercive schools that we currently are paying our tax money for. Let's pause here for a moment. Is public education really hopelessly coercive? Peter Gray seems to think so. In our upcoming Education Futures Reads book chat on February 5th, 2017, we will discuss Peter Hartkamp's Beyond Coercive Education, a plea for the realization of the rights of the child in education. Now, in his book, Peter Hartkamp expresses a view that's similar to Peter Gray's, but he argues that it's not too late to transform our approach to public education. Rather than focusing on play, Peter Hartkamp builds his case through a look at fundamental human rights. It'll be an interesting conversation for sure. You can learn more about the book discussion on Beyond Course of Education at educationfutures.com reads. Well, I think that within, if you're teaching within a, within a standard school, whether public or private, you, um, you pretty much have, I mean, you, Today, at least in the United States, you pretty much have to follow the curriculum. I mean, you're more or less required by law to do it if you want to keep your job. I think when I was a kid, one of the reasons schools were not so odious when I was a kid as they are today is that teachers had a lot of autonomy. Um, somehow teaching was a profession that was respected in many ways. It wasn't a very well-paid profession, but it was respected. And um, teachers had a fair amount of autonomy. And um, so some teachers would, you know, they would teach what they were interested in or what they saw the kids were interested in. Um, and they weren't that concerned about the specific curriculum. They would kind of use the curriculum as a guidestone, and, and uh, there was some textbook stuff. But sometimes they would uh, depart fairly much from the curriculum. I think that that's much harder for teachers to do today, at least in the United States. And I know quite a number of public school teachers, including my my much younger sister, who never shared quite the radical view about education that I have, but who and who was teaching in middle school uh, for many, many years, loved the kids, the kids loved her. But as things became more restrictive of what she could do, she found herself feeling increasingly depressed and found herself hating to go to work, found herself feeling like she was doing more harm than good for her kids because she was being required by the administrators to teach that curriculum and to teach them basically the answers to the test questions. That's the whole job of 
teaching when you're when you're teaching to these to all these standardized tests. So she got so depressed about it that she resigned well before her uh, time for her pension, um, at least time to get a full pension. She simply resigned because she couldn't do it anymore. I've heard quite a number of stories from other very, very good teachers that are similar to that. So let's get to the parent side of this. Uh, we talk about teachers a little bit. Let's get to the parent side a bit. You talk about trustful parenting quite a bit, and you say that allows self-education to blossom. Can you explain more about what trustful parenting entails? Yeah, let me... Um, of course, there are some limits to it. You know, you're not going to... Uh, you're not going to put a two-year-old outdoors uh, 20 miles from your home and expect the two-year-old to find his or her way to your home. <laughs> uh, you're not going to, you know, there, there, of course there are limits. You know, one way, the, you know, the real, the superstars of trustful parenting are uh, hunter-gatherers, and I've written about this, and um, I did, a, a graduate student of mine and I, a number of years ago, surveyed anthropologists who among them had lived in seven different hunter-gatherer cultures, and um, what we found was that, um, that in every one of these cultures, children by the age of four are allowed to run with other children away from adults. And they're spending most of their days with other kids away from adults, playing and exploring. And this is in a place, you know, these are places where there might be lions and tigers and certainly, you know, deadly snakes and so on. And yet by age four, children, the, the belief is you don't need to watch children anymore. They have common sense. They're not going to do anything crazy. They're going to hang around with the older kids, and the older kids also have enough sense to watch out for the younger kids somewhat. Mm -hmm. So, um, so kids—that's their belief. Uh, I have—I've uh, seen films of little kids, toddlers. This, in this case, two-year-olds uh, in hunter-gatherer cultures, playing with fire, playing with machetes, <laughs> you know, doing these things that parents in our culture would be appalled by. And um, and the anthropologist told me that um, I asked the anthropologist, well, why why do the parents let them do this? And and the anthropologist says, well, if I, if I were to ask the parent, they would probably give me two answers. One is, um, what right do I have to tell them not to do it? <laughs> and secondly, I mean, this is what they want to do. And secondly. Um, yeah, they might hurt themselves, but they're not going to kill themselves with this. They're not going to seriously <laughs> damage themselves. They might get cut. They might get burned, and many children do, and that's how they learn, right? That's how they learn to use these things. They get little injuries as a result of it. But in this sa these same cultures, the poison air, the poison darts are kept way high up in a tree, <laughs> well out of the reach of any two-year-olds or even the four and five and six-year-olds, right? So these are not negligent parents. These are simply parents who have a different view of what children's capacities are and what and and what is a serious risk and what isn't a serious risk. So playing with a poison dart, that's a serious risk. That'll kill you if you scratch yourself with it. Playing with a machete, not a serious risk. You'll cut yourself, but it'll heal up, right? Playing with fire, not a serious risk. You might char your finger a little bit and have a scab. Not going to kill you. And it's better to let the kids play 
and have the joy of learning and, and learning how to use these tools than it is to deprive them of what is this risk. We have in our culture this view that everything is is a huge risk. And so we deprive our children of almost all activities that are not very carefully supervised and controlled by adults. And I think what we have to do is to, is to, it's a new way of looking at risk assessment. So let's say that you're going to, you're thinking about the question of should your eight-year-old child be allowed to go out and play in the park <laughs> with other kids without you there or some other adult there? What is the serious risk that you are undertaking? What's the chance that some you know, child molester is going to come along and snatch your kid or some kidnapper is going to snatch your kid. What's the chance that your child is going to fall out of a tree and break her neck? The chances when you calculate this, when you look at the actual incidences of these things, is tiny. It's real. It's, it's there. It can happen. And once you get these ideas in your head, it's hard to get them out of your head. But the chance is very, very small. The chance, there's even if your child is at home, you know, the something, the roof could fall down and the child could be crushed. Or if you drive your child someplace, which all parents do because they think it's safer to drive, you might have a traffic accident. Everything entails risk. There's nothing that doesn't entail risk. And the other thing to take into account when you're thinking about this is what's the risk of depriving your child of having adventures? and feeling like your child is capable, the child feeling like, I'm capable of doing this. I'm capable of going to the park myself. I'm capable of climbing that tree and coming down. That's how children develop courage. That's how children develop a sense of control over their own lives. When we deprive children of those opportunities, then when they grow up and suddenly they're faced with a real emergency or a real problem in life, they panic. They don't know how to handle it because they haven't developed the capacity to handle fearful situations through their natural, relatively safe play as they're growing up. So children are designed by nature to take risks, but they also know how to calibrate those risks. The child who climbs a tree knows I can make it that high and I can come down safely. And if they go a little too high, they begin to feel unsafe, they come down. But the adult watching doesn't know that. The adult watching doesn't know how capable the child is, but the child knows. And over the course of natural selection, children have acquired instinctive abilities to understand how much risk they can take and what would be too much risk. So... So the bottom line for parents then is what would it take for us as parents to trust our kids to learn without directing them as to what to learn or how to do it? Well, I think that, um, you know, there, there's a number of books that I would recommend reading. Mine, of course, <laughs> but also uh, uh, also Lenore Skenazy's Free Range Kids uh, talks about some of the statistics here through humor. She does a very good job of pointing out how silly some of our fears are, actually. Uh, and um, another book I would recommend is Mike Lanz's book called Playborhood, because what um, he does is he describes in this book a number of different neighborhoods 
that figured out how to make it possible for kids to get out and play without immediate adult uh, supervision and, and direction uh, in a way that the parents felt it was safe enough so that they would allow their kids to do that. So there are solutions that are out there. Um, and so I think the first thing you have to do is you have to say, I really want my child to be out there playing without me there, without other adults, directly supervising. How can I find a way to do that? And it might involve getting together with other neighbors, uh, finding others who are like-minded, creating uh, maybe some kind of a shared uh, system where if you are, if you and your neighbors are at least some of you afraid to let the kids go to the park just by themselves, have one adult go there, but have that adult stand back. Have that adult not be too involved. Have that adult allow the kids to um, do what they want to do unless it becomes obviously truly dangerous. In that way, maybe the parents will feel it's safe enough. Let me allow my kids go out and play. So there's, there's a number of different solutions to the problem. You might be interested in knowing that Peter Gray is now forming an alliance for self-directed education. It's a network of people who have been previously working independently, including folks who write books, lead conferences, start subway-type schools, unschool their children, and advocate for childhood freedom and play. You can learn more about the initiative on the web at self-directed.org. This episode of the Education Futures podcast is made possible through the support of our wonderful listeners, and especially the folks who write to us, provide feedback, insights, and ideas for future episodes. You can learn more about the series at educationfutures.com slash podcast. If you'd like to chat with us on social media, you can find us on Twitter at edfutures and on Facebook at educationfutures. Email us your stories. Keeping conversations about the future of education going depends on you. We would love for you to share your stories, your thoughts, your opinions, and ideas for use in upcoming podcasts. Please email me directly. I'm John at educationfutures.com. And you can also visit us at educationfutures.com to engage in the discussion involving learning and the future of education. You can also find me on Twitter. I'm at Moravec. Thank you, and we look forward to continuing the conversation with you in our upcoming podcasts. In our next episode, we're going to take a hard look at big data in education. But we ask the question, is it doing more harm than good? Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.